All right, starting in verse 1, chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem, not only locking up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I, I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Pray over your written word this morning and this account, this third account of the Apostle Paul and his conversion. Father, pray your spirit guides us in, in going through this passage, guides us in truth, and that truth abides in us as we leave out here this morning and that we use and every one of your words to glorify you, to glorify your name, to, to, to magnify your name throughout the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a lifestyle. 
It's, it's, it's not a relationship. It's not a worldview. So that's something that to, to, to think about. Certainly that those are things that encompass Christianity. You know, certainly knowledge has a play in it. Uh, our, our walk, our relationship with, with God certainly has a play in it. Um, certainly we, we live as Christians in as a certain understanding of, of how the world is. A lens through scripture, or our biblical worldview. But Christianity is not just one of those things individually. It encompasses all of them. Christianity is, is, is a man or a woman given new life. New life through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ and then imputed into them by the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian life. So when a man or a woman is given this new life, they begin to, to despise the world, radically transformed by the one who is resurrected, Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's something that I'm about to say, kind of bear with me here because it'll sound heretical until I finish. But we're not saved because Christ died. We're saved because he lives. It's because he lives. If he stayed in the grave, none of us would be saved. We're saved because he lives. Because he lives. So when we come here to this, this account here in Scripture, this is the third mentioning of, of Paul's conversion. Uh, we're going to learn that when Christ calls a man out of darkness, he takes this, this enemy of the cross and he turns them and transforms them and, 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 and forgives them and sanctifies them. So we're going to see from, from Paul's history, from Paul's change, his conversion, and then we're going to really focus today on, on Paul's mission, right? the mission in which the Lord has, has given Paul. So first let's look at his history. So you can turn with me to that first account um, in Acts chapter 9. I'm moving around too much, and I'm not getting picked up by this mic. Somebody, somebody yelled at me. I'm used to having to move around a little bit. This first account here. Uh, ever since this chapter, chapter 9, Paul uh, has been an apostle. Apostle to Christ. Uh, beginning in this chapter, verse 15 here, Paul becomes this instrument of God to bring the gospel to Gentiles to kings, and also to the nation of Israel. So in other words, chapter 9 here, verse 15, Paul calls, or sorry, God calls Paul out of darkness, into the light, and makes him an apostle to all the world, the entire world. But Paul, he was not always an apostle. Saul of Tarsus, he's not always an apostle to, to the world. In fact, uh, at the beginning here of, of chapter 9, we find Paul, he's breathing out murderous threats. He's this fire-breathing Pharisee that we see that's persecuting the church. And so in, in Acts 9, we have this, this, this radical conversion of the Apostle Paul. His conversion is, is told here by Luke as, as a narrator. But then the two other times, 
in the book of Acts here, Paul himself is the one retelling his conversion. So in Acts 22, and also in our passage here this morning in, in Acts 26. So instead of seeing these three accounts, I've been hitting on this quite a bit lately because this is just so uh, compact into this narrative that we see with Paul. I want us to, to continuously put in our mind that although there's, there's emphasis on Paul, uh, this, is, this is God's story. This is him. He is the only hero in this story. So it's, it's the Holy Spirit's work through this vessel, through this man, um, the Apostle Paul, in working to establish the church, establishing the church here. And so, for example, if we take Acts 9, we have Paul who hates the church, persecuting the church, who's breathing out these murderous threats and actions, who is, has all sorts of power. He's been given authority by the chief priest to go to Damascus and completely extinguish Christianity there. They heard about this uprising of Christianity in Damascus, and so they give him this authority to go there and extinguish it. He's halfway, halfway there and in, in, in halfway in our chapter, uh, in, in, in chapter 9 here. This persecutor of the church Completely transformed from death to life and then becomes an apostle of Christ. And it shows, what this shows to us here is how there is no man, no matter what authority, no matter what power this man has, cannot oppose the work of the Holy Spirit, cannot thwart God's plan. It may seem like here in, in Acts 9, Paul was on this ascend, this, this, this power uh, that he had over the church to go and extinguish. The Holy Spirit brings him to his knees, brings him to his back, puts him flat on his back, and changes this persecutor into an apostle. So in Acts 9, there's great hope. There's great hope for the early church right, in, the, in the midst of persecution. There's also great hope for us in this and seeing that there's no man no man able to stand against the work of the Holy Spirit no man able to thwart the will of God so then in Acts 22 let's lie that way the second account it's a different account but this is Paul here uh making this account, his case before the mob in Jerusalem. He's standing at the, the garrison, the, the, the steps of the Antonio Fortress, and he's declaring the works of the Holy Spirit, he's declaring what happened back in Acts 9. He's recounting that, and in this way, Paul, he's declaring according to God's promise to Abraham, the seed of the serpent will be crushed, and the seed of all the nations will be blessed through the seed of the woman who came the line of Abraham. The Jews, they reject that promise, of course. They reject it, and the Gentiles are grafted in, grafted into the church, and God's promise and expands. It's the promise that's been given since, some would say, the Abrahamic covenant, but 
We see it clean back in, in, in Genesis 9, verse 27. You see it clean back there with, with Noah, where it says that may, may God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. See it right there from the beginning. Who came out of Shem? What was the, the nation that came out of Shem? Israel. Japheth. Gentiles. You see the promise right there of this engrafting in. Clean back. Genesis 9. We can argue even earlier. That one is pretty blatant. The Jews, they reject that. They reject that. And so that's what's emphasized here in Acts 22 when we look at Paul's narrative and in, in his conversion there. Again, that's good news. It's good news for the church. That's good news for us. I'm not sure if you realize this, but we're, we're Gentiles. And there's, I guess, some that are quasi Samaritans in here. But what's the Gentiles? The reason we're here is because the promise of the Lord has, has been expanded through the ministry of, of the Apostle Paul and the ministry of the Holy Spirit using the Apostle Paul as that vessel. So Paul, he's a, he's a Jewish man called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what's emphasized here in his account that uh, he speaks on here in Acts 22. But this account here of Paul's conversion in, in our passage this morning... And 26. It's a little bit different. So here Paul is in the audience hall of Festus. He's in Caesarea. Bernice and Agrippa II, they have come. And now Paul, he's not really making a case because it's not an official trial. But he's explaining to Agrippa what, what has happened to him. And the reason why he's doing that is in hopes that they'll be saved. He's preaching the gospel to him. Now, Festus had a different idea of, of why. His, his motive was to, to figure out what kind of charge to give the Apostle Paul before he sent him to the Emperor Nero. They're saying because, for Festus, because even though Paul has been imprisoned for, for two years, this time Festus had no idea what he should charge him with and when he sends him to uh, Caesar the emperor so here paul he's in festus audience hall and he's making this presentation to king agrippa a man who says here's familiar he's familiar with the, the the controversies of the jews he's familiar with the customs of the jewish people and because paul he knows that he knows that this man understands jewish custom customs so paul he begins to connect here he begins to connect himself to the Pharisees, he stands and he, he gestures with his hand, a, a, um, a way of just calming the audience and, and before it's about to speak. And then in verse 5 here, it says he's lived as one, as one who is a Pharisee. And Agrippa here, he would understand what, at least for the most part, what that meant to be a Pharisee. Paul's standing there, he's connecting himself with this religion of the Jews, and he does what Festus has already recognized, which I think is, is amazing, really, that Festus, by hearing Paul speak, Paul articulating what's going on, 
Festus recognizes that this dispute between Paul and the Jewish people was really a controversy about their own faith. It wasn't a charge that was a charge that um, would bring a, a sentence of death or condemnation in that way. The Jews of Paul day, Paul's day here, they, they didn't see it. They didn't recognize that connection between Christ and the Old Testament. That was their, that was their hiccup. That was their, their stumbling stone. But Paul rightly does see it. He sees the connection that the Jews are, do not see, and, and that's why they're up in arms. That's why they're, they're infuriated. Not because Paul is beginning something new, but because he has properly linked the fulfillment of the Old Testament to the Messiah, who is Christ. That's why they were so up in arms about what he's preaching. The Jews that refused to acknowledge Jesus in the, New, in the Old Testament, Christians, they, they see it. They see, they see Christ on every single page. See him in the, in the law. They see him in the, in the prophets, in the, in the Psalms. Every page, see Christ. For Christians, Christ is the fulfillment. Fulfillment of all these things. And for the Jews, in, in their mind, he's a blasphemer. He's a blasphemer of what, what they wrongly understand. They're misunderstanding. And so therefore, when we get to verses 8 through 12 here in our passage, when Paul, he's, a talking, he's talking here to Agrippa II about what's going on in his life. The center plank of Paul's assessment of the Jewish hatred towards him points directly towards the resurrection. It's the resurrection. He begins in verse 8. Paul says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He's saying, like, didn't God create everything out of nothing? Isn't that part of, of your Jewish understanding? That's what he's saying to them. They would understand that. I and mean, they had Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. God created. Why would it be impossible that God would give a new life? New life to a human. The resurrection of, of Christ here is it, the flashpoint. And in verse 9, Paul remembers himself, was convinced that, that he should oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul himself had one point thought that Jesus was the blasphemer. So he tried to get the followers of Christ to blaspheme his name, to say that Jesus is not Lord, to say that he's only a man, to say that there's no power in Christ, that he's not the Redeemer, he's not the resurrected one, he's not the Messiah. That was what Paul was trying to do. His desire was that Christians would turn from their, turn from their faith, denounce their faith in the Lord Jesus and then when they would not, it says in verse 11 here, what he would do. He would punish them often and punish them even liberally, meaning that he would punish men, women, children, 
geographically. He would go out, go all over. Damascus was some 160 miles from Jerusalem. Just shows how fervent and sincere Paul thought he was. Talked about this before. You, you can be extremely sincere in what you're doing, but you can also be sincerely wrong. And that was the Apostle Paul. The purpose of Paul telling this part of his conversion experience would simply be to talk about how he was completely changed from one who was a raging Pharisee against the Lord to one who becomes an apostle of Christ. He'd be simply repeating the purpose of what happened in Acts chapter 9. So, in hindsight here, Paul, he's aware that he was a man consumed, consumed by hatred. And so in verse 13, or 13 through 18, he retells the narrative about how he was changed. How, how he was changed from this man who was dead, dead in his trespasses, raging against the church, raging against Christ, to one who now has life and breath. And becomes an apostle to the Lord. So Paul, when he was living in this, this rage, he was, he was veiled. He was oblivious. He was oblivious to how unjustified his life was. He was full of confidence, full of fury. But then one afternoon, the Lord shows himself to Paul, says in a bright light, with a voice that, that could not be ignored. Verse 15, Paul's response to the, to the voice in the bright light. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Paul, he, he recognized what's going on. And the Lord shows this self-righteous Paul who he truly is. Paul is shown by God that he is a persecutor of God himself. The one whom he thought he was serving revealed to him that he was persecuting. He's a persecutor of, of, of Christ, persecutor of his people, Paul being an, an enemy of the Lord. God says to Paul, it's, it's, it's difficult, he says, it's difficult to kick against the goads. The danger of Paul's activities are, are made clear as day to him. The Lord's saying, Paul, you think you're doing what is right, but you're actually kicking against the very instrument that's supposed to move you and spur you in the right direction. That's what he means by it. When he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goes. Goes with just a, a long stick with a pointed end to get an oxen, to typically an oxen, to, to move from a stationary position to forward. If they kick against it, all it would do is harm them even more. Paul, he's kicking against that instrument. I can't just imagine that that, that that reveals to us here that there is something going on in the apostle's heart, in the apostle's mind, prior to his conversion. There was some sort of drawing, just as we see and read about, and in 
in John's um, account that it's the Father who draws, draws a per- person to the Son. What I mean by that is, is the Lord seems Harvey to kick against that goes. You're seeing all these things that happen. Seeing from the beginning where he's holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen. I imagine what went through his mind as he's seeing this man who is being stoned to death cry out, Lord, Lord, forgive them. They, they know not what they do. It's imprinted in, into Paul's mind. I'm sure he saw similar things as he's persecuting the church. These men and women standing firm. internal struggle happening in the midst of all this where he's seeing these things and kicking against it kicking against the truth that he's seeing that's why the Lord says it's hard for you to kick against the goads the danger of Paul's life is clear fighting against a fight against God will never end well he always wins. He always wins. So the contribution here of this third telling of Paul's conversion that can be seen here, and this is really where I want us to, to focus on the remainder of this morning is in verse 18. So here can be seen not necessarily in Paul's conversion itself, but what comes out of Paul's conversion. What's the aftermath of, of Paul's conversion? It's not the event itself, but the purpose that God gives to Paul once the event is over. So in verse 18, Paul is told by God the reason for his apostleship, the reason for his calling. If you look in verse 18, you can see there's three main reasons why God gives, that God gives to the Apostle Paul for sending him and, and, and sparing him on the road to Damascus. We're going to look at those. The first one, here, to open the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And right after that, it says, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And then lastly, that they may have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God gives Paul, he gives him these, these three theological aspects of redemption that flow from the gospel. And he says, your purpose is to bring these to people. Your purpose is to go declare these things to people. That is your purpose. Now, these three reasons that God gives to Paul, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are his and, and, and he is yours. All of these things are true of you. All of these things. If you're in Christ, all of those things apply to you. They've been imputed into you. So when it says in the beginning here of, of verse 18, that Paul is called to be sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. What's that describing? Describing the doctrine of regeneration. Doctrine of regeneration. The, the doctrine of regeneration. Sometimes we call it, you hear it saying, to be born again. To be born again. 
When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he's talking about needing to be born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. We still are, each and every person has been born of flesh, but not all have been born by the Spirit. That's what he's talking about there. So apart from this spiritual rebirth, Every human being is, is dead, is dead in their soul. And that's the result of the fall. So for example, we can see this even throughout the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. So Ezekiel is, is in the valley of dry bones. And God gives him this vision and takes him in this vision to this valley that's filled with all these dry bones. Charges him to prophesy over these bones. And Ezekiel, he does that. There's this rattling in the, in the valley. And what happens? The bones come together. The ligaments are formed. The flesh is formed around the bones. The bodies are still dead. They're still dead. They're not alive. When do they become alive? Just when, the, when the breath of God enters these bodies. Breath of God enters the bodies. That's the picture of regeneration. That's the, the picture of rebirth, to be born again. It's a picture of what it looks like to be turned from darkness to light. Because before the breath of God is in you, you're a corpse. You can't see anything else but darkness. For the breath of God is in you, you're dead in your sins, and dead in your trespasses. So here we see the first part that God uses Paul is to be a vessel, a vessel of the message of rebirth, to be born again. Now obviously, make a note that Paul doesn't give anybody rebirth. Paul himself doesn't give anybody rebirth. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work. But Paul used as the instrument to accomplish this in the life of the Gentiles, the vessel to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we see here, he's sent by God to the Gentiles, a people who Jews could not imagine receiving salvation. So he sent the Gentiles so that they would be awakened, awakened from this darkness. The power of Satan would be turned to the light. Turn to Christ. Their eyes may appear and, and, and gaze upon the light of Christ. So that's the first of, of God's purpose here in Paul's ministry. Regeneration. To preach a regeneration. And secondly, again here in verse 18, it says that they might receive forgiveness of sins. So they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. The doctrine which talks about how, how it is that a sinful human being can be declared righteous in God's courtroom. That's what he's speaking of here. The doctrine of justification through forgiveness of sins is what Paul, he preaches in, in much of his ministry constantly. Uh, and sometimes here in scripture, it, 
records for us in, in, in abbreviated fashion. For example, you don't have to turn here if you don't want to, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, you see there Paul, and he's talking to the Corinthians about what he has said to them in the past. He said, I came to you declaring what? Nothing except Christ crucified. Nothing at the beginning except Christ in him crucified. That's a description of God's work of, of hanging on the cross to pay for the guilt of the sins of his people. The guilt and the shame ever since the very first sin from the human race. What had happened? Remember what happened? Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. What, 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 did, what emotion did they feel? You know, we don't move upon emotions and feelings, but they're a real thing. Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame fell upon them. So what did they do? What was their, their instant reaction? To hide. To take matters into their own hands, fashion a covering for their nakedness, because remember, they, they, they understood that they were naked at that point, and that guilt and shame fell upon them. We see the Lord calling out for them, knowing exactly where they were. So they were hiding. And we see him set up this temporal sacrificial system right there in the garden doesn't give the specifics on it but it says he clothed them with animal skins took an animal sacrificed it in some fashion clothed them to cover their guilt and shame their nakedness it's temporal setup that will eventually be fulfilled in Christ. We talked on this on Thursday. As we're going through John, we're, we're hitting the, the, the pinnacle of the book there in John of the crucifixion. And just the picture, and putting yourself in, in, in the midst of that event, you have Christ suffering on the cross, a death that so gruesome, stripped of everything, he hung there naked. His outer garments, his tunic, which would have been the one, the layer that was against his skin, was taken off, casted lots, fulfilling the prophecy in Psalm 22. hung there, naked, in guilt and shame. Brings my, my mind to, to that garden, that, that initial sin, which they were the guilt and the shame of, of sinning, guilt and the shame of their nakedness. Let me fast forward to the cross, Christ. Naked on the cross, 
bearing the sins of all of his people. Why? A once and for all sacrifice to cover. Just like he covered Adam and Eve with that skin of the animal. But a once and for all sacrifice. That his righteousness will then cover and clothe the guilt and the shame of his people. Another place where you see this, this doctrine of justification in a narrative form, it's the very beginning of John's gospel. We see the forgiveness of sins focused on Christ. Very first chapter, verse 29, you have John, Baptist, seeing, seeing Jesus walking along the sea. He says to his disciples, Behold, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, takes away the guilt and the shame of his people. When you know Jesus, is the one who takes away the sins from your heart. Your knowledge of God then therefore becomes good news. It becomes good news. Before Jesus takes away the guilt of your sins, you, to know God is to know him only as your judge. Only as your judge. When Jesus is received by faith, justification is applied to your heart. And no longer is God just your judge. He becomes your father, friend, Lord, Savior. He becomes the one who embraces you. God becomes the one who is pleased with you. Not because of what you did of what Christ has done on the cross. So remember Isaiah 53, the prophecy of Christ's crucifixion said it, it, it pleased, it pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to crush him. Why? How can that be? at that moment, at that moment, he saw us. He saw us, our sins, the penalty that needs to be paid for our sins. That's why now when he looks upon us, now he sees Christ. It's just the righteousness of Christ in us. What he has done on the cross. Not only are your sins removed, but the righteousness of Christ is placed upon you. You're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So this last thing here in this verse 18, can we see that... uh, Paul's calling was to open the eyes, open the eyes of the Gentiles so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and then that they may receive forgiveness of sins. 
And lastly, it says that they may have a place among those who are sanctified, sanctified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the word, the word sanctified in Scripture has two meanings. There's two meanings to the word sanctified. The one, on one hand, means to be set apart. And that's the, the objective sanctification. And we've talked a little bit about this. We used the word righteousness at a, about a month ago. And the, that there's this objective righteousness that's imputed into us. So then, therefore, we can now do righteous deeds, righteous works. Same for sanctification. There's this objective sanctification that is applied, that is imputed. So we talk about objective sanctification is that which is objectively true to all believers, to all of his people. That we've been set apart and belong to Christ. So, for example, we see in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, here, we're talking of, of the sacrifice of Christ on behalf of his people. In verse 10 it says, And by that will we have and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. So we look at it, we see the wording here in Hebrews. It points to something that is accomplished, it's finished, it's complete. We have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. It's not being sanctified. Hebrews 10.10 10 here, that we have been sanctified. So that's the objective sanctification that is, that is found in the word of God. It's complete. It is finished. It's etched. It is sealed. And there's this other aspect here of sanctification that's ongoing. Ongoing sanctification. And that's the aspect of sanctification that we talk about, of being purified from sins, to, to mortify sins. Each and every day to pick up our cross daily and follow him. How we learn to recognize our sins. To flee from them. To live in righteousness before God. That's also recorded in Hebrews 10. Verse 14. Again, speaking of Christ's offering. He says, For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's not a completed statement there. There's, there are those who are, who are being sanctified. Although we are perfectly sanctified, we are also being sanctified. So there's this progressive sanctification we see here that is true in every life of every Christian. So here it seems most likely that Paul, here in, our, in Acts 26, 18, that Paul has the objective sanctification in mind when, he, when he's speaking here of, of his ministry. But we have to remember that we cannot separate the two. We cannot separate objective sanctification from progressive sanctification. They're, they're, they come in a package. If you are objectively sanctified, you are set apart by God objectively. And then you are also being sanctified progressively. I mean, set apart for good works which God has prepared in advance that you should walk in them. 
they can't separate objective and progressive sanctification. That's where our objectively sanctified will be progressively sanctified. He who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion. So Paul, his three ministry functions are, are complete regeneration, regeneration, justification, and sanctification. Those three things is, is, is the purpose in which the Lord has called the Apostle Paul to, to speak forth, to be the vessel of the message of regeneration, justification, and sanctification. That's why, Paul, that's why God converts Paul on the road to Damascus and, and so that he would go forth to bring glory to the one who created him, the one who converted him, and be used as an agent to those, those three purposes among the Gentiles, and among kings, and among even his people as well, the nation of Israel. So that's the essence of the purpose why Paul's conversion story is being told here for the third time. It's one last time. God uses the declaration of the gospel to regenerate, justify, and sanctify. That's God's mission. It's God's mission for the Apostle Paul. It's his mission for us. So therefore, as God's people, for us this morning, as we respond here to this chapter in Acts, we should learn that, that we should always expect Always expect there to be an effect. An effect of the gospel. Always. The danger. The danger of, of Christianity, of course, is that it can become academic. I say that in the side of, like, not true Christianity become an academic exercise where we, we simply have to just know some things about God. As in the same way we would study a event in American history or a person in American history. So we can learn more things about God and we should learn more things about God each and every day. Be learning more and more about him. How can we can serve him more, serve him better? But God's ministry through Paul is, is completely different than simply just head knowledge. God's ministry through Paul is to transform a person from inside out, to transform them from, from top to bottom. Take somebody who's dead in their trespasses and bring them to life. It's the calling is as vessels. Our congregation, we have, we have a heavy emphasis on teaching. We have several Bible studies throughout the week. Teaching about God is not all that there is to the Christian life. It's not all there is be much more to simply knowing things about God. You could have Genesis to Revelation memorized and still be spiritually sick 
refer to it as being spiritually obese. Paul's ministry is one that, that focuses on regeneration, justification, and sanctification. That's what it's focused upon. Each of these represent a, a radical change with that person. A radical change. A person who is born again goes from death to life. A person who is justified goes from guilty to not guilty. A person who is sanctified goes from worldly to heavenly. Eyes are no longer set to the things of the world. And there's a radical change in the life of the believer. If you are regenerated in Christ, you are a corpse, but, but his, his breath, his breath now fills you. The power of the Holy Spirit now fills you. If you were justified in Christ, you stood guilty, guilty of eternal condemnation. Now, not only is your sins removed, but the righteousness of Christ is upon you. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Do we fully understand what that means? My kids, do you fully understand what that means? Righteousness, the purity, the sinless, the sinlessness of Christ covers you. When God looks at you, when he, he when he looks upon you, he no longer does he see the person that is an enemy. But he sees you. He loves you. You are welcome in his eternal dwelling in heaven. He delights in you. upon you he sees his son he sees Jesus in whom he is well pleased if you are sanctified whether objective or progressive remember we can't separate the two if you are objectively sanctified you are being progressively sanctified you belong to the multitude in heaven I often thought just ponder and wonder what they are doing right now. The multitude in heaven. What are they doing right now? Are they living according to the flesh? Are they satisfying the lust of their mind? The passions of their heart? By no means are they. The multitude in heaven, they're, 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 they're righteous, they're pure. They're obedient to all God's commandments without mistake. Something we ought to long for. That's what will happen to us in heaven. No longer sin anymore. As of right now, we're not. We're not in heaven. So when we compare ourselves to those who are in heaven, there are times where we do not live as we are called. 
It's God's people. So when you find yourself in that way, beloved, to Christ you must turn. To Christ you must turn. To him you must be sanctified. You must go on being sanctified because you are already sanctified. You must turn to Christ and in, in, in Christ alone. Not trying to make our own covering, not trying to hide ourselves in the garden and make our own covering. I will not cover the guilt and shame. Just confess your sins to Him, Him alone. Rely on His holiness to cover you. Just cry out to Him, Him alone. He alone. He alone can change a person from death to life. Only through his sacrifice. He alone can change a person from guilty to righteous. He alone can make a person no longer worldly. But make them long for the ways of heaven. Make them pant like a deer for water. Longing that awaited inheritance that awaits. So this morning, may that be the desire, be the desire of all of our hearts. That eternity be painted on our eyelids. That each and every step that we take, every breath that we breathe. will be through the lens of eternity. So this morning as we, we partake in communion, let us reflect upon his sacrifice. As we partake in the bread let us remember his flesh, the body in which he gave up for us to cover us from the guilt and shame. As we drink of the juice, let us be reminded of the blood that he sacrificed, poured out on, on the altar. A once and for all sacrifice. And in that, place yourself this morning. Place yourself at the foot of the cross. Place yourself there with John, Mary. Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas. Place yourself there with them. Looking upon your Savior covering you with the guilt and shame of sin. Covering you from the guilt and shame with his righteousness. So I'll pray here and we'll just filter in for, for communion.
and it's always where we'll collectively take communion together, but you don't, um, the concept of partaking in the elements, uh, do so individually at the time that um, it's right for you and your family. Um, so I'll pray. Heavenly Father, let's always be reminded of the sacrifice of your son Jesus. And that the blood that he poured out upon the, the cross. that we can live in righteousness. Father, I pray you bless these, these elements, the bread and the juice. Father, let us not ever flippantly come to your table do so with a contrite heart. And do so with true remembrance of your son, Jesus. Father, we praise you, lift you up, we thank you. We thank you for making the sacrifice of your son for guilty sinners like us. I pray that your name be glorified today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.